Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding and I am an author, but also I am the director of the centre. Now, in today's episode, I thought I would take on the most recent of the Wizarding World films as a review, but also take an opportunity to dip into the world of Harry Potter and the writings of J.K. Rowling. Because even though we are the Oxford Centre for Fantasy, and these aren't, strictly speaking, anything to do with Oxford, other than providing a few locations at one time, it's such a large part of the fantasy scene, and the reason why many people go on to read fantasy as they grow older, that I thought it'd be worth dipping into it and having a look at the whole Harry Potter phenomenon. But let's start with a review of the most recent film. This is the third in the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them series uh, called The Secrets of Dumbledore. And it comes after two other installments. The very first one is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. The second one is The Crimes of Grindelwald and now this one. Now, I think it's fair to say that these films are not loved as much as the Harry Potter films. So I'm going to first of all talk about this film on its own merits and how it fits in this series and then compare it to what's going on when you compare it to the Harry Potter sequence. Now, I would say that if you haven't yet gone to see the film, that this particular instalment, the third, is not bad. For one thing, the plot is more coherent. The second film. The Crimes of Grindelwald, I think, struggled under the weight of so many different storylines coming in. It really got quite knotted and was, you know, hard to follow and lost a lot of its charm as a result. This one does have a storyline, particularly in the second half of the film, where it becomes uh, quite an exciting kind of heist uh, with a, you know, something they need to achieve and a little bit of... uh, a uh, bit like a sort of Ocean's Eleven style thing of how they're going to achieve it, but set in a wizarding world. So I appreciated that. But I think one of the, for me, one of the things about these films which I struggle with is, comes down really to the colour palette. It is all quite dark and the actors are all adults. So you're looking at quite a unmagical visual landscape except for the moments when they dip into Hogwarts or they have some wonderful beasts to enjoy. I think the first film 
in a sense, was the most successful of this franchise because there, underlying everything else, was the plot line of um, there's this wonderful suitcase that falls open and then beasts are released in New York. And that had so much fun and humour and just had lots of great moments. The second one, as I mentioned, the strongest part of that for me was the thought of this macabre circus in Paris. So there was elements in that work. But this one, uh, it stays pretty dark. It starts in a sort of Berlin and the themes are dark. That fits the themes. And the most brightest moment comes towards the end when you get this shift to Bhutan, a quite sort of, you know, out of left field moment. And when you're watching it, I suppose I'm asking myself, is this, am I watching it because I've watched the Harry Potter films, A Sense of Loyalty, or does it stand up on its own right? Some things are worth, you know, worth the ticket price. So I do enjoy sort of knowing more about Dumbledore. I think, it, you know, Jude Law as Dumbledore is a great choice. He gives it that sort of mischief and gravitas. He's very watchable. And of course, the, the film hangs on him, really. And the new Gellert Grindelwald, Mads Mikkelsen, I think is better than Johnny Depp. Uh, he looks as though he's someone that Professor Dumbledore might well have had a younger man's fling with. And he has a sort of wonderful ascetic face. I don't know, the, the cheekbones maybe. But in, in demeanour, he does seem convincingly as though he's a man with a mission that has turned evil. So yeah, that, that works for me. Eddie Redmayne is is cute, but underused, I think, in these films. He has sort of one sort of note that he strikes, which is that awkwardness, a bit of a shuffle. This is the guy of an Oscar. And you think, mm, you know, maybe there's more that could be done with him. And the other supporting cast, well, the favourite character, I think, for many people is Dan Fogler's Jacob Kowalski, the, the muggle amongst the the wizards, and I think he's great fun. They clear up the Credence figure, the Ezra Miller character. I'm aware there have been issues about some cast members. You know, obviously Johnny Depp has stepped out and Ezra Miller has had his brushes with the law recently. So there probably was a external pressure <laughs> to clear up that character. But if you want to find out what happens to that character's storyline, it does sort itself out, which is quite a relief because that was part of the what was getting very tangled in the second film. And also, I think a very surprising sort of new relationship, which I really enjoyed, is seeing more of the um, Theseus, the brother to Newt, Callum Turner. That was some of the funniest moments, in fact, come with the two brothers together. So, again, there are positive things in this film, and I did enjoy it. I did sit in the cinema enjoying it. But there is a but here. What is it that is less attractive about the Fantastic Beasts to the Harry Potter films? And I'm obviously going to be looking at this from a, a scriptwriting point of view. I admire J.K. Rowling's plotting immensely. She's very good at working out long, overarching plots, and I feel that this is happening in these films but not as successfully as it did in the Harry Potter. One of the problems, of course, is that we already know the end. Right at the beginning of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, when they're having the, the cards in the chocolate frogs, we know that it's going to come to a battle with Dumbledore defeating Grindelwald. So we know that's where we're going. There's, you know, The plot spoiler happened many years ago. 
So that removes some of the jeopardy. But there are ways around that because you can sort of forget that whilst you're watching. I think it comes down to the fact that it has lost some of the charm, which having a younger person growing up and coming into the world provides. Almost all the characters except for Jacob are already part of the Wizarding World. So for them, magic is normal. I think the magic of Harry Potter is discovering that actually outside the boring world of suburbia, the Dursley world, you can then enter into this fantastic world. And it's that journey that Harry goes on and we go with him. That's not available. So you're supposed to be already sold on the idea of wizards when you reach Fantastic Beasts, which of course most of the audience is, but it loses that feeling of, gosh, how marvellous, how spectacular, which is really at the heart of the charm of the Harry Potter series. And of course, there is the vulnerable character, Harry himself. There isn't the same character with the same vulnerabilities in the Fantastic Beasts that you do get people who are exposed and and in, abused in some ways. That's certainly the case with the Ezra Miller character. But they're not the beating heart. And I think, for me, this is why I would turn back to Harry Potter to enjoy in the way that I don't re-watch the Fantastic Beasts films. And the locations don't work as well either. So with Hogwarts, you get... In in some ways, when you think of the, the you know the economics of the Wizarding World, which my family and I have discussed at great length during the two thousands, you know when these books were coming out, I had small children, and that's we were enjoying them step by step. It was hugely exciting, but we did sort of wonder about how the economy worked because the way wizards plug into the real world didn't feel quite right somehow. But anyway, it's fantasy. Let's not worry too much about that you sort of forgave it, the fact that the most strategic place in the world was this school in, in Scotland. That didn't matter. It, it We all agreed because we all loved Hogwarts. That's fine. In this one, the, the stakes are bigger. It feels more like a Nazi takeover of the world. So the scale is appropriate, but somehow uh, in Fantastic Beasts, we lose our connection because we're not sure what's at stake it's not the teachers we know who are having to man the walls or the pupils manning up to go and you know protect the bridge like Neville does in the the last um installment so it it becomes a drift in a sense a drift so I think in terms of problems for keeping an audience I'm not sure who they're appealing to I wonder if we started with Fantastic Beasts if I, as a parent, would feel, oh, yeah, here you are, kids. Here's a really exciting wizarding story. I think I probably wouldn't. And then if it wasn't meant for kids, um, but for older people, the sort of YA audience upwards, then is it really, is it touching on the themes that feel adult? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I have a sort of I don't look forward to these films in the way that I really remember looking forward to the Harry Potter films. I think there was the aspect in the Harry Potter films of wanting to see the children growing up and flourish. Whereas this, I don't know who I'm, who I'm backing. Yeah. I'm, I'm less secure as someone watching it. So what are the lessons in terms of script writing? Well, I think one of the things that come out for me is character is king when you've got a long running series and in this series so far, 
we've shifted characters three times. So the first film we focused on Newt, who I enjoyed and I like Newt a lot. I could have could spend more time with Newt, you know. The second film, it kind of shifted. Lots of people were there. Possibly Credence became a sort of breakout character. But, you know, it just didn't feel very... And then you've got the Queenie and Jacob romance. It all felt a bit, oh, who am I following? And then in the third film, the title gives it away. We're following Dumbledore, which kind of works, but Dumbledore is retentive. He's He knows what he's doing. And he's keeping information back from other people, which makes him, it's not quite the right stance for somebody that you're wanting to follow. Go back to the Harry Potter films. We're very clear who we're following. We are seeing Harry stumble his way to a solution, taking terrible choices. And he has two really close defined friends, plus a circle of people who stick with him. These, these ingredients, I think, really make a series hang together. So when you're thinking of writing a script, if you're interested in being a fantasy writer, I think that comparing the two franchises is actually a really interesting way to work out what you like and what, what is successful. I think really, to be honest, I think the Fantastic Beasts movies are succeeding because they have a really strong cast and they've come on the back of a very successful first instalment in the Harry Potters. And, you know, the special effects and everything are all great. But I don't think they have within them a successful formula. I would love to have seen the books first as well, actually. I I know that uh, J.K. Rowling's gone straight to writing the films without doing the books. I think I'd really enjoy the books if there were was such a thing, with all the fullness of the, the world explained. I think it's one of these, these times when actually having a book series to rest on would have helped these films and would have made the the picking their way through who's who's at whose story is this would have been easier because the writing a novel on this would have forced that realization into the writing process so let's go back to the whole phenomenon of harry potter i think that it was one of the wonders of my sort of parenting life um, is to have such an exciting book series coming out when my own children were growing up and reading. There was a stage when, at bedtime, you couldn't go upstairs without hearing Stephen Fry churning his way through, you know, all the various parts of Harry Potter. And he had so many lovely outcomes. You've got the novels, and then you had the delayed gratification of waiting for the films. It all came at a perfect moment. And then the fun of going to the midnight openings. It was books as rock stars, and obviously J.K. Rowling has fallen into this sort of controversial area at the moment, which I'm not going to touch with a barge pole. But I'm really grateful for the fact that that happened. It was a combination of her uh, imagination and the way the booksellers handled it and Bloomsbury, the publisher. It all had such a brilliant effect on readers. For myself as a writer starting out in the early 2000s, that phenomenon of the money, frankly, that she was bringing into the book trade really helped people who started their writing careers in children's like I did. There was an unrealistic expectation of everybody wanting the next Harry Potter, which, of course, you know, you don't have more than one Beatles. You don't get more than one Harry Potter. But still, it did help sort of give serious attention to that area. 
which I think probably has faded now, but it was very live in the 2000s. What are the strengths of the of those books turning into films? Well, I personally feel that the plotting of book three is the best of all of them. The I'm thinking about them as novels now. And I think that also works out as a very good film. The books get more and more less regulated, you know, they get bigger and bigger, and in a sense, a bit flabbier. If you're invested in the world, you don't mind how long you spend in it, of course. But there was an element in the last book, well, the last two books, which I found editorially less successful. There's a lot of camping in uh, The Deathly Hallows. And the Half-Blood Prince has a lot of flashbacks. So structurally, I found those less successful than the earlier ones, which I think were pure in the way they delivered their plot. So I wasn't going to spend too much time on this uh, podcast thinking about the books because I was really wanting to devote this episode to the films. Of the films, I think the first one is is good film, but it suffers from the fact that the young actors are just hitting their stride as actors. There's a little bit of, oh, I've got a line to deliver, off I go. You know, there's an element of that there, which makes them feel a bit stilted. I think by the second one, they're all getting much more natural as actors. And the second one is of the younger era, let's say the Chris Columbus era, uh, I think that's the better of the two. And it's really sort of the films are hitting their stride by then. Number three, the tonal shift with the change of director. I think that's appropriate and it fits the sort of teenage years element. And it was a real surprise to turn up in uh, a cinema and think, oh, gosh, you could have the same series but done in such different ways. So that that works. And, of course, you've got fantastic performances there from people like um, David Thewlis and, and others, Gary Oldman, of course. So go, going on, of all the films, possibly number four is the most enjoyable as a film, in, in my view. The reason why is because you've been building for a long time to the idea of the return of Voldemort. And it has the structure of the games to keep it sort of like a pattern going, so pushing you forward. But the way they do the return of Voldemort, which is taken from the books, is you isolate your main character. They do this again in the last film, in the final confrontation, uh, when he walks out on his own. And that image of the hero on his own facing the bad people is so powerful and so moving and the performances, Daniel Radcliffe really is, does brilliant in that scene. It's a d- terribly difficult sequence to, to convey, but he really does show grit, conviction, and a sense of love and power. I mean, it's just really well judged from him, and he was obviously quite young when he did that. And you've got Ray Fiennes being just, you know, who else could they have cast? You know, answers on a postcard. I couldn't think of anyone else who could do that menace better so I think of the films number four is probably the peak of the Harry Potter films though all of them I think have very enjoyable moments and they don't forget fun even the dark ones still and I think that comes from the friendship even though they get darker and darker there is the sort of rewards of having invested so much in characters so Neville Longbottom becoming the action hero in the last one. Definitely a cheer moment. And you can only get that because you've set it up such a long time in advance, way back in, you know, film four when he was giving the the gillyweed 
to help Harry at the uh, the trial with the mermaid eggs. Anyway, so I think those films manage to sustain the story by a having a memory, you know, remembering what it's like to appreciate magic and the wonderfulness of magic rather than having it as an, you know, taken for granted part of the world. And also having its band of brothers and sisters, its little cast, which carried it, which is sort of muffed a bit, well, muffed quite a lot in the Fantastic Beasts. Do So going back to where I started, do I think Fantastic Beasts will succeed in bringing this all together in the final parts of these films. If they go on to make them, I suppose that will depend on box office. What I would like to see, for what it's worth, and <laughs> I would like to see battening down on central characters. So, okay, Jacob succeeds. He's a good character. Newt's a good character. Thesis is a good character. Dumbledore's a good character. Uh, it's a shame that the women aren't. There's not a really standout woman. I did enjoy Eulalie. Hicks, I thought she was good, but how she interacts with everybody else was always a bit, a bit of a. It doesn't feel as though the the central group has got a, a good woman there, really, which is a shame, because um, Queenie obviously sort of flitted in and out by playing on the dark side. Yeah, so something's not quite right there. Anyway, I would like to see a central core of characters being focused on rather than trying to do a whole world each each film and remembering that it's called fantastic beasts why not really focus on a creature and a, a dilemma that involves one of these beasts to to remind us that this is where the magic is supposed to really exist in these films is in the fantastic beasts the kind of thing that they thought of more in the first film so if i was going to give uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, a star rating out of five. I'd give it a three, i.e. not too bad, watchable, but still not quite hitting the the four and five stars of the Harry Potter films of before. I always have in this podcast uh, wherein all the fantasy world is the best place to be something. And because I've been talking about Fantastic Beasts, uh, obviously, the thing to pick is where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place to be a fantastic beast. Now, I don't think it's a really good thing to be in the world of the Wizarding World because if I wouldn't spoil it too much, but there's quite a lot of animal abuse going on in uh, The Secrets of Dumbledore. I don't want to spoil that's a bit of a plot twist, but something not nice happens to one poor little beast. So, you know, uh, not a good place. I actually started my fantasy writing career create, creating a, a not dissimilar world of mythical creatures in the Companions Quartet. This was back in the 2000s, long before this series came out, which is a con set in contemporary age, but involves the secret society for the protection of mythical creatures. And that is a pretty good place to be a mythical creature because you have companions, like human companions, who are your friends, and they get up to lots of adventures together. But I can't possibly choose my own world. That would be a bit, you know, a bit too much like navel-gazing or whatever. So I'm going to think across, and I think the most wonderful place to be a fantastic beast must be somewhere like Narnia, where you are a talking beast, and you have rights and leadership and a wonderful world to move in, a uh, world of talking animals. So I think that's what I would choose. Do 
leave any comments that you have on this question of where is the best place to be a fantastic fantastic beast in our social media or or contact us directly at the oxford center for fantasy thank you very much for listening we're going to be back having guests so i look forward to putting more of these podcasts together and talking to you as we week by week as we explore fantasy themes thank you very much and goodbye Thanks for listening to MythMakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.